You know, in a lot of ways, the 2020 college football season will be one for the history books, even in more ways than we originally thought. What will Stanford miss out on this season, potentially? That's one of the things that we will be discussing on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. Hope it's a good one for you. If you're here in the Bay Area, man, it's been weird, hasn't it? I'm looking out my window right now at a red sky, and here it is mid-morning. It's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Hopefully we can make some sense of a few things for you here on this episode of the show. Looking forward to be joining to be joined rather by our special guest, one of the very best in the business in college football media, and a Stanford guy to boot from ESPN. College football senior writer Ivan Mazel has perhaps a better and a more keen grasp of the historical aspects of college football than perhaps anyone out there right now. Looking forward to getting his thoughts on historically, where could we potentially be placing this college football season, what Stanford's missing out on by, by not being a part of it. And oh, by the way, he covered some pretty cool folks during his time on the farm. So we'll talk with Ivan Mazel about that and so many more things, uh, plus three things you need to know coming up in just a moment or so. Troy Clarity, glad you're with us. Follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity. Last name is C-L-A-R-D-Y at Troy Clarity. I always welcome your thoughts on the show. Best way to send those to me is also via Twitter, hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast is the way to go there. If you've missed any previous portions, any previous episodes and interviews that we've had on the show, I highly suggest you uh, go back and check them out. Or even if you want to hear them again, head to your favorite uh, listening app and check them out that way. Or, of course, head to the Believe Podcast Network page at BLEAV.com and head to the TreeCast page from there. Three things coming up in a moment, but first, this note, the wait finally over. Football is back, and you might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Game spreads and totals, team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online, and there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. Head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Speaking of football's return, college football, uh, getting back into it last week, the NFL, they kick off on Thursday. And I figured this would be a perfect time to give you three things you need to know about Stanford and the NFL this year. Let's start off with number one. Oh, is this the NFL primetime band? Wow. I, I love that show. Boomer and TJ. Man, when that show was at its peak, nothing better on TV. Um, but I digress. Stanford with two young men selected in the 2020 NFL draft this past spring. Tight end Colby Parkinson taken in the fourth round by Seattle. And linebacker Casey Tuhill drafted by Philadelphia in the seventh and the final round. Colby suffered a foot fracture back in June. He made Seattle's final roster on the reserve non-football injury list. So best of luck to Colby going forward as uh, he tries to get back onto the field. Now, as for Tuhill, well, first, let's go back to the April 2nd episode of the TreeCast when Tuhill joined us and we had this exchange. I'm focused on, you know, 
improving my pass rush, adding size. And if, I mean, if they do think, if people think I'll be better in a few years, that's fine. I never want to peak too early. I mean, I'm always just trying to see how good I can be. And that's really my goal for the NFL. Just, just get as good as I can, improve every day, and then everything else should take care of itself. Hey, being better in a couple of years isn't a bad thing. I hope I'm better at this in a exactly. couple of years. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever Casey worked on, it worked. Two Hill made the squad for the Eagles. Philadelphia GM Howie Roseman admitting over the weekend that Casey had an uphill battle making the 53-man roster at defensive end where the Eagles have him spotted, but they liked his explosiveness and his motor, definitely two things that, that we saw during his time on the farm, and they liked how he improved as camp went along. Which brings, that, which brings us back to what Casey told us in the soundbite you just heard. Congrats to Casey for earning his roster spot with the Eagles. By the way, Cardinal well-repped in Philly with Tuhill, Nate Herbig, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, and of course, Zach Ertz. And elsewhere in the NFC East, too, with uh, Blake Martinez, a defensive captain now for the New York Giants. Oh, speaking of the NFC East, let's head to number two. <laughs> You know who else conquered some odds and, and made their team? A guy by the name of Jonathan Bryce Love. But we all call him Bryce. Love drafted by the Washington football team last year, but did not play as he recovered from the injuries that, that hampered his Stanford career. This year, Love had some obstacles, but his path got cleared a bit when Darius Geis ran afoul of the law and Adrian Peterson was released, a shocker in, in many circles in football outside of Washington. Now, Washington also liked what it saw from Bryce during camp, which partially paved the way for Peterson's release, and they kept Bryce on the 53-man roster. Love won't start. He's, he's not listed as Washington starting running back. In fact, the team says that he's still maybe a couple months away from being 100% healthy, but he'll definitely get some snaps early on in the year as they work him into the fold. Looking forward to seeing what Bryce does next. So is the Washington football team. Let's finish it up with number three. And this is pretty cool. If you count full rosters, practice squads, injured reserves, suspended players, and opt-outs, Stanford has 35 players in the NFL this year. Among Pac-12 schools, only Washington has more. And 27 of those 35 players for Stanford are active. That 27-player tally ties the Cardinal with the Huskies for the most of any Pac-12 school with players in the NFL. By the way, that's also more players than USC and UCLA. I'm old enough to remember when Stanford having more players in the NFL than USC was just as ludicrous as ludicrous could be, and even if you suggested it, someone would be on the phone calling up the men in white coats to come and take you away. Not so ludicrous now. Here we are. Stanford making big impacts. As James Lofton and I talked about a couple weeks ago, the uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer, former Cardinal receiver, and uh, now NFL and CBS analyst, James and I talked about that a couple weeks ago on the TreeCast. But Stanford doing big things in the National Football League. Those are three things. We bring you three things generally every episode, and normally they focus on three things you need to know around Stanford Athletics. Thought we'd kind of narrow things down just a little bit for this week and hope you enjoyed that. Looking forward to catching up with ESPN uh, senior college football writer Ivan Mazel, a Stanford guy himself, in just a few minutes or so. 
Um, but first, I want to go back to last week's announcement from the Pac-12. I, I posted uh, the TreeCast on Thursday morning with uh, Stanford women's basketball head coach Tara Vanderveer, a great conversation. If you missed it, go back and check it out. We posted that episode on Thursday morning, and then early Thursday afternoon, the Pac-12 made its announcement, and it's a pretty significant one at this point that they've entered into an agreement with a diagnostic test leader, uh, the Quido Corporation, to implement up to daily testing for COVID-19 with uh, student athletes across all of its campuses for all close contact sports. And uh, those uh, tests could be available by the end of September 2020. Significant and a step in the right direction. Now, of course, it leads up to the big question. So, does that mean that we could see a potential for some of the fall sports, if not all of them, which are currently on the shelf until January 1st at the earliest? Does that open up the door for football and perhaps maybe some of the other fall sports to return now before January the 1st? That very question was put to Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott during the media webinar uh, on Thursday afternoon announcing this agreement. And here is Mr. Scott's response. When we made our decision to uh, not start competition before January 1st. Um, yeah, it was based on the information in front of us, leading with what public health authorities will allow us to do and not having access to the kind of testing we will now have access to uh, by the en end of the month. Uh, some of this is still outside our control in terms of public health authorities being comfortable with kind of contact required for football practice and training camp. As you know, we've been really clear and open and transparent. We need a full six weeks in the sport of football uh, to feel uh, safe um, and to mitigate possibility of injuries. And so we're only going to go about this uh, in a way that we feel comfortable uh, the health and safety of the student athletes um, is, is well looked after and, and not cut it too fine. Um, so again, what we can't predict is when we're going to get the approvals we need from government authorities. This testing piece is a big step forward. And I'm hopeful, Christian, that does open up possibilities to start competition before January 1st, but that decision has not been taken yet. We will continue to follow all the data and the science and keep working in a very collaborative fashion like we have. That's Commissioner Larry Scott and his thoughts on the potential for this announcement with more rapid testing being available potentially for the Pac-12. Uh, perhaps bringing Pac-12 football and maybe some of the other fall sports and maybe even basketball as well into the fold before January the 1st. And, and you hear the, the hopefulness. You hear some optimism from Larry Scott, optimism that you did not hear when the Pac-12 was announcing its conference-only slate back on July 31st when it was initially looking like, like Stanford, like Pac-12 rather, was just going to try to go um, with conference games only beginning on September the 26th. Pac-12 made that announcement on July 31st. On that day, Larry Scott was asked his confidence level as far as whether the conference could pull that off, and he said, well, quite honestly, I don't know. Clearly much more optimism from Larry Scott this time around. And look, it's not, it's not a guarantee that the Pac-12 is going to be playing anything and participating in any competition before January 1st, but it's, it's encouraging. It's an encouraging step. And as of right now, that's all we can really ask 
of, of, of the situation going forward until there is an actual real live vaccine so we can truly and certainly uh, wipe this out once and for all. And I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that, that you heard Larry Scott bring up um, the fact that they need, and the coaches have been adamant about this, even dating back to the spring, uh, the coaches in particular have been adamant that they need six weeks to prepare kids for the upcoming football season, no matter when it starts. And you heard Larry Scott uh, touch on the fact that contact practices are, are a big part of that. And for further proof of that, that BYU-Navy game on Monday night, Navy didn't have any contact practices going into that game against BYU on Labor Day evening. And it showed right from jump, BYU much, much more physical than Navy right from the very beginning. And by the end of the first quarter, uh, soon and early in the second quarter, after BYU made it 21-0, I was reaching for the remote and saying, all right, cool, what else is on? I'd seen everything I needed to see. Navy just was not physically ready to go. So the importance of having those six weeks of contact practices leading into football borne out by the Navy midshipmen in their 55-3 loss to BYU on Monday. So bottom line here is that you see how other conferences have approached this, and, and I'm not going to get necessarily get into which conferences are approaching it the right way and which ones are approaching it the wrong way, because Look, we're all just kind of flying blind here a little bit everywhere around the country and just trying to uh, be, be as nimble and as, and as adaptive as everyone possibly can. Whether it's the right way or the wrong way about the Pac-12 and their approach to this, I'm not going to say I, I, because I can't say, but I will say this. I respect what they've done. I respect what the Pac-12 has done to this point. It hasn't been an easy decision to not be playing football at this very point when everybody else is about to kick off. Certainly the bigger conferences are going to get uh, start seeing some action here very quickly. But the Pac-12 didn't rush into it. They, they didn't just throw the players out there, and they're not just throwing the players out there and hoping for the best, even while some of their campuses are just absolutely raging with coronavirus cases. Pac-12 has, has played it cautiously, and they've kind of kept their nose to the grindstone and they've, above all, been united in how they've approached this. Top to bottom, we haven't seen the discord that we've seen in other conferences like the Big Ten, who have really struggled with their messaging as this thing has gone along. So I respect how the Pac-12 has, has approached this to this point. And potentially, hopefully, optimistically, and you know me, I'm an optimistic guy, but I'm a realistic guy too. But I'm, I'm feeling a bit more optimistic about things, certainly much more than I have since perhaps early June or so. So a step in the right direction for the Pac-12. Looking forward to seeing where it all leads. Well, an unprecedented college football season is underway. What happens next? And with Stanford and the Pac-12 and the Big Ten all on the sidelines, what happens next for them as well? I think I've got the perfect person to ask those questions and more. One of the very best in the business in all of college football media, ESPN college football senior writer for, for that, for that uh, organization since 2002. And most importantly, Stanford class of 1981. Pleasure to welcome into the show, Ivan Mazel. Ivan, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? 
Boy, that sounds like a long time ago. Troy, I am <laughs> I'm doing well. I appreciate being here. You bet. Uh, pleasure to have you here on, on the show. And uh, let's, let me start here. With, with everything surrounding the sport, all the things that are going on uh, off the field, the pandemic, the financial insecurity with athletic departments across the country, uh, social justice, um, with all the things that are surrounding the sport right now that it's having to deal with, how did it feel for you to finally be watching college football this past weekend? <laughs> uh, you know, in one sense, it's definitely comforting uh, because we just didn't even know if we would get what we got, which was sort of the classic uh, uninteresting early season non-conference matchups. Uh, and yet still a little weird to watch, you know, the, more because of, how the games are staged, you know, there's no or very few fans. Uh, those uh, godforsaken electronic whistles, you know, which I guess we'll get used to, you know, at some point, maybe. Uh, and just, you know, seeing guys, seeing coaches in, in, in the striped shirts wearing masks and all the little things that, that the pandemic has forced us to change, it it, it it was great to see, but it was still not quite home, you know, to, 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 for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, and, and maybe we get there as the larger conferences uh, get more and more into the mix, even though there are a lot of questions there, too. And, and the quality of the ball wasn't that great. Uh, and if I made the case that the most memorable moment of the weekend was, was Kirk Herbstreet having his emotional moment on college game day uh, over, over the weekend, what a powerful moment that was, uh, what would you say to that? Sure. Yeah. No. You know. I. I. I think the most impressive moment on the field was the way BYU played against Navy. Uh, I had this. <laughs> I had this great theory after Army did what it did in Middle Tennessee State that, you know, they, there's so much discipline on a military academy and in all the chaos they were best equipped to keep their focus and do what they needed to do to play good football. And, and that, that idea lasted right up until the BYU Navy kickoff because it only applied to Navy, to Army. It sure didn't apply to Navy. But, uh, yeah, Kirk, Kirk's moment was uh, wonderful to see. And uh, as he said, sub subsequently completely unscripted, which made it all the more powerful. I mean, we were seeing pretty much raw emotion. And – uh, it was, uh, I think, nice that he trusted the viewers to understand where he was coming from. Certainly one of the more significant uh, moments in the history of, of, of that great show. Um, let's talk about uh, the Pac-12. They made a big announcement last week uh, partnering with a company that will help them get uh, rapid testing, which, of course, is very necessary if you want to pull off any sports on any level, especially to this scale uh, in this day and age. Uh, what did you make of the Pac-12's announcement regarding um, that potential development and what it could potentially mean uh, for the Pac-12 going forward? Well, I took some comfort in, in the realization that they're not just lying around waiting for the spring. You know, they are still actively seeking solutions. And, and that, you know, granted from afar, because I'm on the East Coast, uh, you know, so I'm not uh, you know, right on top of things. That was nice to see. And if 
these rapid tests allow the Pac-12 to move its timeline forward, terrific. I think everybody would be in favor of that. Uh, I respect the conference's uh, ability, or ability is not the right word, but just the fact that they have put health first and and that the, the response in, uh, from the public's been fairly muted. Uh, you know, the, there's all kind of uh, concern and protest in the Midwest and Big Ten country, but out there, and maybe it speaks to how dire the, the pandemic has been on the West Coast and California in particular, uh, but nobody's really complaining, uh, you know, about what the Pac-12 has done. And, and, you know, I think that's probably nice. Yeah, it's amazing uh, considering the public outcry or the public um, or, or response to how the Pac-12 has handled things and certainly how the Big Ten has handled things. Uh, same decision, but, but diametrically opposite uh, responses to that, I guess, in a sense. Uh, what does college football miss without having the Pac-12 and the Big Ten in the fold? What do the Pac-12 and the Big Ten miss out on by not being able to kick off, at least as of this point, uh, with, along with everybody else? Well, I, I think the the biggest thing we're missing is is certainty and continuity. You know, I mean, this when you come to a season, you expect the Big Ten and the Pac-12 to play, and and you can only formulate relative strength of of a of any powerful team related to how they look compared to everybody else. And if you know two conferences aren't playing, it throws everything. Uh, in my mind, it, it throws everything into chaos. I mean, how are we really going to have a playoff if two conferences aren't playing? That, uh, and, you know, and you can make the argument that, you know, when the gun goes off, if you're not at the starting line, then you can't complain about not being at the finish line. You know? But it still means it's weird. And uh, I think we're, we all miss that. Uh, you know, we all wanted to see uh, USC open against Alabama last weekend. We all wanted to see Oregon and, and whether they could continue uh, the upward trend of last season. Uh, you know, new coach at UW, you know, can Stanford bounce back? You know, Cal's got some momentum. There's so many great storylines just in the north alone, new coach at Wazoo. Uh, and, and we don't get to follow any of that. So, you know, that, that's, I think, frustrating whether you're in or out of the conference. Um, you know, what, what uh, obviously what the, the, the conferences themselves miss is just the ability, to, you know, everything that college football brings to a campus and to its larger community. You know, the, the players, do, especially the seniors, uh, have to put their – senior season on hold and, and may never play it. Uh, that's a huge disappointment. And, you know, I guess we'll get a good measure, Troy, of, of what college football means to a campus because it's not going to be there. And, you know, how much of that, what does it mean to pull everybody back to campus six or seven days uh, in the fall? Uh, you know, we all think it means more uh, camaraderie, more alumni donations, you know, a, a great feeling on campus. I guess now that we don't have it, we'll find out just how big that is.
Yeah, and, and oh, by the way, all the university presidents, uh, besides trying to wrestle with bringing football back, trying to wrestle with keeping kids on campus if they already have them there and trying to keep everyone healthy, not an easy dance for everybody to do. Uh, you mentioned, yeah. yeah, exactly. That Well, that's a good start. <laughs> that is certainly a very good start. Uh, you, you mentioned storylines in the Pac-12 North, and, and you mentioned Stanford can't it bounce back uh, from the disappointment of 2019. Uh, let's let's kind of dive into that a little bit. What, what What's your sense of some of the things that were at stake for Stanford this season? Well, you know, everything. I mean, you know, you can have a bad year and bounce back. It's certainly tougher to bounce back from consecutive bad years. You know, that, that you know, stops being an aberration and, and becomes a trend. Um, it, it's easy to paint a scenario as an optimist that, you know, last year was an incredible amount of injuries Stanford had gone so long without suffering any difficult injuries you know it was that uh was that Shannon Turley's doing you know he leaves and all of a sudden there are a lot of injuries it's very easy to connect those dots uh that doesn't mean that's actually the reason you know so this season we were going to find out a lot about you know the, the the program moving on past you know, the past strength program and, and into the current. And and really, because more guys were healthy, get a truer sense of, of how good the program is right now. What's your sense of how David Shaw is viewed on a national level? I, I get the sense that he gets a bit more respect nationally than maybe he does here, here locally <laughs> in some respects. I don't think there's any question of that. I, I think there's two things going on there. You know, one is uh, – you know, you, you're never, you're rarely as popular uh, in your own hometown as you are, you know, around the world. Um, if nothing else, he, he has raised the bar of, of what Stanford football means to where, you know, people are, have gotten to the point that they're perpetually unsatisfied. You know, I, I would say as an alum, uh you will never, you know, beyond my journalistic trying to stay in the middle of the road, you, I would never complain about what David Shaw has accomplished at Stanford. You know, I had, uh, my alma mater had been to one Rose Bowl uh, since I graduated, I think, you know, before David got there and then went to three and four or five years. So no arguments for me. Um, and I think nationally that that's to, to answer your question, that's sort of how he is regarded as well. Here's a guy that did what very few thought was possible at Stanford, win three pack 12 titles, 10 and 12, I think. And, uh, he is seen and also because of who David is and because of his personality and his intellect and his ability to communicate. I think he has very rapidly become a uh, a guy people look to for for wisdom when it comes to anything in intercollegiate athletics, but especially football. And you know, it, it came as no surprise to me that he has uh, become chair of the football rules committee. You know, not that that is some prestigious. Uh, chair. I mean, a lot of times that's, you know, who wants to take this on, but the fact that he did want to take it on, it does have some uh, prominence and, and some visibility, uh, that role. 
and and the, that he has taken that on, I think, is another measure of the respect afforded him. I'm I'm a bit biased here. I'll I'll admit it myself, but but I think that Stanford's resurgence and at sometimes dominance over the past 12 years or so has been one of college football's great stories this century. Um, am, am I crazy for thinking that? I, I would have to think I would be at the very at the very least um, in that conversation of, of of great stories on a national level collegiately this century. Yeah, and there's two reasons why, and one reason I think why it hasn't really popped. I think the two reasons why are one, it's Stanford, and Stanford's athletic mission is so radically different from everybody else's. You know, the, the fact that they, you know, Stanford is acting out what everybody else purports to do, you know, which is be at the highest level academically and be at the highest level athletically. Uh, to the depth, depth, uh, I think is the right word, <laughs> the depths from which Stanford arose to, to get to this pinnacle is, you know, everybody loves a Cinderella story. And the fact that it uh, was kickstarted in such dramatic fashion in Jim Harbaugh's first year by that upset of USC, you know, considered uh, the second greatest upset that season and the second greatest upset in modern history, you know, to App State beating Michigan. Um, so those two things, I think, help buttress your argument. I think one thing working against it is it's Stanford. And Stanford's profile, its, its footprint in the Bay Area is small because it's a college team and a pro marketing area. And uh, we've seen over the course of really, it actually is sort of the course of my lifetime, the last 60 years, college programs in NFL cities have struggled mightily to remain relevant competitively and to remain, uh, in, you know, f to retain fan interest. I think the Huskies, and USC are, are exceptions to that rule. Mm -hmm. Stanford has, uh, you know, had some interest and it's waned over the last five to seven years, which I don't really understand. Uh, but I think that has sort of diminished the excitement around Stanford, which has blunted its force across the country. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on, on all of those accounts. Um, yeah. Is it me or is the season getting postponed on a Cal team that maybe could have been in the conversation for winning its first uh, conference title in 60 years? Is it me or is that one of the most Cal things ever? <laughs> well said. Well put. Uh, yeah, they, they, had, they definitely had some mo, and, and, and it may translate into, you know, whenever things pick up again. I think – uh, Cal made a terrific hire in Justin Wilcox. He's a good coach. He seems to be the right guy for that program, which is always impossible to uh, define, you know, how you figure that out. But, you know, they made a good hire, and he's done a good turnaround job. Um, you know, the last two big games have gone down to the wire. Uh, I think Stanford won – two years ago because they knew they, they knew how to win. 
And then, you know, Cal in the end last year made one great play and turned a decade around, you know, and, and who knows what that means for, for the rivalry from here on out. But uh, that is uh, remarkably bad luck. And uh, the, the Stanford alum in me would point out that Cal has not been to the Rose Bowl in my lifetime, and, and I'm not young. So. <laughs> been a long time. It's amazing. Uh, Stanford has beaten Cal, UCLA, and USC, swept them uh, three times, I believe, in the past five seasons, while Cal has not beaten Stanford, UCLA, and USC in the same season since that 1958 Rose Bowl team. Just something I like to, I like to throw out there whenever, I, whenever oh, the Cal good. fans are, are, are getting high and mighty there a little bit. Um, now, you, you mentioned, um, you know, we, we talked about earlier, class of 81, and, and certainly that was a, a magnificent and interesting time on the farm, as, at least athletically. Uh, and, and two athletes walking around on that campus who were – certainly transcend, uh, transcendental in their respective sports. You covered them both, John McEnroe in tennis and, of course, John Elway in football. What yeah. was it like covering those guys? Well, uh, Mac and I, I didn't, I didn't cover Mac as much as we were just friends because we were both in Rinconada. So uh, by the time I actually started covering the tennis team, which I did, I, I don't think I did it in my freshman year. You know, maybe I did. I'd have to go back and look. I, I don't remember. But but Mac and I became friends the way you become friends in freshman dorm. And, and honestly, Troy, he was really only in the dorm fall quarter because if you remember how the tennis season goes, those guys are traveling, you know, winter and spring all the time. Uh, so and, – and they're just busy. Uh, but we bonded those first ten weeks. And, in fact uh, – I ran into him a couple of years ago. He was on his uh, senior tennis tour in, in Lincoln, and I came in to cover a Husker game and called him, and, and I went and watched him play, and we spent an hour afterwards just kind of chit-chatting and, uh, it, you know, just a, a good guy, lifelong friendship, uh, really smart guy, and and as we see – just one of the great competitors of all time. I did beat him in ping pong once. Uh, you know, Elway was two years behind me and just a, you know, uh, just so much fun to watch. And not only in football. I mean, football we all knew, but right. I, I can remember uh, spring quarter of my senior year, his sophomore year, we all – you know, Sunken Diamond was a, an appointment. You know, we would go and just, you know, sit high up in the stands so we could get a good view of right field. And and I, I remember with great clarity, uh, a runner being on third, less than two outs, fly ball to John. Uh, he catches it, and we all raise up in anticipation of this play at the plate. Guy tags up, races down the baseline. John just winds up and fires the ball and the guy slid in and the ball hit the backstop 10 feet high. You know, that's how strong his arm was. You know, and, and we were all, we all clapped. I mean, it, you know, it, it cost Stanford a run, but it was an incredible throw. Uh, it, so he, uh, 
I just actually ended up bumped into John this summer uh, and ended up playing around the golf with him. He, he looks great. He, he feels good. He's a grandfather now. Uh, you know, loves what he's doing with the Broncos. It, you know, not, it's nice to have those relationships. John Elway, grandfather. Wow, my mind just went completely yeah. kablooey there. When and he, you mentioned and he that. feels the same way about that. <laughs> you know, I mean, we started talking about how do you feel about turning 60? Right. And, and, and you know, we both agreed that was fine. He said, but, you know, I got to tell you, the, the, the grandfather thing has thrown me a little. He said, I love it. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's – it's, you know, he said it's, it's a little weird. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing to think about. And something else that was amazing to think about. And, you know, I'm, I'm class of 97 was with KZSU sports, you know, during the mid nineties. And I'd like to think that, that that era of KZSU sports was one of the unquestioned golden eras. Dave Fleming, oh, of yeah. course, doing what he's doing. Uh, Dave Raymond with the Texas Rangers, Chris Atterbury with the Minnesota twins. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay, but nowhere near those guys to this point. But I look back <laughs> at the Daily Archive, and I saw some bylines around 1980 that just blew me away. Yourself, uh, Chris Haft, who has been covering Major League Baseball consistently for the past three decades, and Sally Jenkins, the blockbuster columnist now for the Washington Post. What was it like being on staff with those folks? Well, it was great. Uh, you know, and again, lifelong friendships. Uh, Chris and I were next-door neighbors in Rinconada. Uh, on the third floor. He was 306, I was 307. And we bonded immediately because we were both, uh, you know, baseball nutcases at that time. And Chris grew up in Menlo Park and was a, you know, an enormous Giants fan. Uh, and and now he's had the, the privilege of covering them uh, uh, for much of his career, which I can't imagine anything more storybook than that. Uh, and he and I used to go to eight to 10 Giants games every spring quarter. You know, we'd buy our tickets, you know, in fall quarter. You know, the minute the schedule came out, we'd, we'd run and go do it. Uh, Sally was a year behind us. Uh, I think she walked into the daily office, the, the old daily office, uh, probably her first day on campus. And the only way, only reason I say that, Troy, is that that same day her dad walked in looking for her, who of course was Dan Jenkins, the, you know, a legend in our business. And, yep. and, and Dan walked in and I, I was sitting at the desk behind a, a Royal typewriter that when the, the daily went to computers, I swiped and I'm staring at the, at the typewriter right now. Huh. Uh, it's, it's in my office here. Uh, Dan walked in and he said, Hey, I'm looking for Sally Jenkins. And, and I could not speak. Uh, I, I was like, you know, my jaw dropped and I'm like, Oh my God, that's Dan Jenkins. Uh, and eventually got it out uh, that, you know, she had been there. She, you know, she's coming back or whatever I said. And, uh, and, and Dan became a, a friend and mentor, uh, you know, Sally and I worked together for the next three years and, and we still keep in touch. We were emailing in the last 10 days, you know, so uh, it, it's very cool. A lot of fun. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, everyone talks about Syracuse. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're on the East Coast. You know, <laughs> all those Syracuse people do is talk. I'd put Stanford and the folks that we placed in the media right up there as far as our quality certainly is concerned um, with Syracuse. Uh, a couple last things here for you. Let's bring it back uh, here to present day. Um, <laughs> I've seen, you know, you mentioned the playoff and, and how, you know, interesting that could look uh, as we go along here. Um, I'm kind of looking at it differently here. College football playoff here. Should I take COVID-19 or the field? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, if you go back, I did a story, geez, probably within the last month about the pandemic of 1918 and and what happened with college football then. And, And Rachel Bachman of all the Wall Street Journal just did another similar piece. Uh, I think hers was better uh, last week. But but anyway, and what struck me about that season was how seat of the pants it was. And, you know, so teams, were, you know, campuses would shut down, uh, the pandemic would go through, and then they would start back up. Uh, so uh, some played all and almost all played some, but there were vast differences in, in how many games were played by by everybody and and that was the best they could do so that was okay and you know I I don't know if we are in we will be in those dire straits this fall you know it depends on you know you can certainly find those predictions that it's going to come back in a surge an upsurge this fall but if that happens you know we're going to see weird schedules you know weird they're going to be tough ways of figuring out, you know, who wins and, and who should go to the playoffs. I will tell you this. One thing I learned from, from 1918 is that I think Iowa played nine games that year and Purdue only played six. And only one of them was a Big Ten game, which was then called the Western Conference. But Purdue, at 1-0 and in the conference, having beaten the worst team in the conference, the University of Chicago, and only beat them seven to three, Purdue is listed as a co-champion of the Western Conference that year. It's still in the Big Ten record book. You know, Purdue uh, won a conference championship by going one and zero in the league. So, you know, maybe somebody will get that lucky this fall. Who, who knows? Who knows? It was just kind of interesting to me seeing people pick, you know, Alabama to win uh, the playoff when I'm also seeing headlines concurrently with them having, you know, nearly 2,000 students uh, and 2,000 cases on that campus. I'm like sitting there going, wait a minute. Yeah, no, and, and yeah. you know, the, the Baylor, Baylor canceled its game right? yep. this week on Tuesday, you know, and, and TCU and SMU are looking, you know, I mean, games are being canceled almost every day and I think it just wouldn't surprise me if we see that throughout the fall. Yeah, yeah. Last thing I got for you here. Um, obviously, with so many things converging, um, pandemic, social justice, and all the, all the other things, it's certainly an inflection point for the country, and it seems like it's, it's an inflection point for college sports. Stanford cutting 11 varsity sports earlier this summer. Everything seems to be coming to a head in a lot of different ways. What's your sense of how – this college sports season, not just football, but college sports season, could potentially be remembered down the road with all the things that seem to be converging right now. Oh, yeah, it will definitely be remembered. I think, you know, we look at wartime, you know, it's obviously a parallel to wartime football, Troy, and and that's what it has, you know, it has taken world wars to interrupt 
collegiate athletics to this degree. Uh, 1918 was a world war and a pandemic. You know, the mid forties was just a war. Now we have just a pandemic, which I guess is, is a good thing. Uh, but you know, it will be remembered as a, hopefully it will be only one season that's remembered as, as unusual. And, uh, I'm a little curious about how many of the changes that the pandemic has wrought will, will become you know, permanent, you know, are, are the things that are being done now going to be looked at as improvements? You know, are we going to stick with this electronic whistle or, or you know, how long are we going to wear masks? Will the team areas on the sidelines, which have been extended from 50 to 70 yards, will those, will, you know, will that maintain, will that be kept? And, you know, those aren't huge differences, but they're different. And, and the sport is going through a lot of uh, seat of the pants change this fall. And I guess we'll find out, you know, how permanent that is. Everyone's got to be nimble. Everyone has to adapt and hopefully everything goes off according to plan with, of course, obviously wouldn't mind seeing the Pac-12 and the, and the Big Ten uh, getting back into the swing, the swing of things as soon as they possibly can as well. <laughs> that would certainly, certainly be very nice. This chat was nice. I certainly enjoyed it. I can't believe this is our first time chatting, but we'll need to do it again. Ivan Mazel from ESPN.com. Thanks a bunch. Stay healthy. Best of uh, health and luck uh, to you and your family, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Troy. No, thank you. Uh, certainly a big-time uh, pleasure to have Ivan Mazel on the show. He actually uh, taught a uh, continuing studies class at Stanford, I believe, uh, not too long ago. I think my buddy Ray uh, took that class and, uh, and, and really enjoyed it. John Elway's a grandfather. <laughs> Holy smokes. But uh, intriguing point by Ivan there at the very end of it all with, you know, what, what potentially from this era of college football and the way that college sports uh, needs to conduct business right now just to get through this time, uh, given all the other things that are that are surrounding and converging on the sport um, at, at this point in time, uh, what sort of things survive as as everyone continues to adapt going forward? And I hate to, I, I've really come to to hate the phrase new normal, but there, there certainly is going to be a, a difference in, in how things work uh, going forward. And I Personally, I hope it doesn't mean that all media availability is done during Zoom. <laughs> I, I would hate uh, for that to be the case. That certainly would not, uh, uh, not, not be cool for me. But, uh, you know, he's, he's absolutely 100% spot on right. And the parallels, some of, the, some of the, 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 the correlations between what's happening now and what happened 100 years ago and in other eras, uh, specifically during World War II, are somewhat, somewhat eerie. When you look at how similar some of these uh, situations um, tend to be, so glad that Ivan could give us a bit of a, a bit of a historical uh, perspective uh, from that standpoint. And look, I, I said it during our chat with him, and I will definitely say it again: Syracuse is Syracuse, and that's fine. They, they've got pretty much, uh, you know, I mean, Tarico, Costas, uh, Marv Albert, and his, his sons, um, Ian Eagle. His son, who's now the voice of the L.A. Clippers. Syracuse has a lot of folks that kind of tend to run things in, in sports media. But quality-wise, I'd put what we've done on the farm and who we've produced right up there with anyone else. 
the three that I mentioned earlier, Dave Fleming, Dave Raymond, and uh, Chris Atterbury. Um, Rosalind Gold, Anwade, has done fantastic stuff with the NBA. Um, Ivan Maisel. Uh, who, who just who just joined us? Uh, Ramona Shelburne has been fantastic um, with ESPN two. Uh, the uh, Chene Ogumike with a uh, national radio show now on ESPN Radio. Just so many fantastic media. Fo- Kyle Peterson, we had him on the show back in March. The former Stanford pitcher who has become ESPN's lead college baseball analyst, and he does a fantastic job. Um, it's really cool. Really cool to see all the different uh, Stanford folks that are on the high level of things in uh, Stanford sports media. I'm just trying not to embarrass us. <laughs> uh, you've got thoughts on this show. Of course, I always welcome them. Send me a tweet. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity. At Troy Clarity is the way to go there. And of course, uh, you can also respond. Hashtag TreeCast by far is the best way to ensure that I see um, your responses to anything that we talk about on the show or anything that's on your mind around Stanford football and Stanford athletics. Stanford would have been at Arizona this week. That would have been interesting with Arizona trying to uh, get some uh, resemblance of respectability and uh, Stanford with their first road trip of the year. That was originally on the slate uh, for this weekend. Obviously, that is not happening. But uh, we'll be here through it for you. Here on the TreeCast, talking Stanford athletics like nobody else does in the podcast space. Special thanks to our guest from ESPN, college football senior writer Ivan Mazel. Really enjoyed catching up with him. Biggest thanks going out to you for being a part of the show, subscribing, rating, reviewing, telling folks about the program, and uh, listening and downloading the show. I always appreciate that. Uh, all, all that you do to help uh, make this show what it has become and uh, what it can be in the very near future. Stay safe, stay healthy. Um, weird times, man. I'm, again, I'm looking out my window right now at a reddish orange sky. I've, I've still got my light on here in our office, and it's midday practically. And I'm looking outside. Our, our street lights are still on too. Just weird times. Hang in there. Hang in there. We'll get through it and do what you need to do to make sure that we all get through it too. You can wear a mask, masket or casket, that reminder, and don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. Thanks for checking us out. We'll see you next time on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. <laughs>